Well, this is uh, Tom Gabriel Warrior, formerly of Hellhammer and Celtic Frost, now uh, with Tripticon. And you're listening to Focus on Metal, one of the best shows there is. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to your weekly dose of Focus on Metal. So this week, we uh, once again visit our 2017 project on Kerrang! magazine. Of course, we kicked it off a few weeks ago with Malcolm Dome, and uh, Richie and I talked a little bit about that. And one of the things Richie said at the time was trying not to sit on audio for too long. So we're trying to adhere to that and try to bring you our interviews with the uh, classic Kerrang! players pretty close to when we actually do the chats. So back on Super Bowl Sunday afternoon, Richie and I gave a call to Xavier Russell, one of the uh, guys that Richie was really looking forward to talking to because of the type of bands that he covered for Kerrang! And we had a pretty damn good conversation with Xavier about all kinds of stuff, the bands, the magazine, some great stories this guy had with some of the stories that he did and bands that he covered. So we have all that and more this week as we bring you Kerrang! Episode 2 with Xavier Russell. So Xavier, how did you end up in Kerrang! originally? Because we've when I had Malcolm Dome on, he said he came from, I think it was Record Collector, and of course a lot of guys came from Sounds. Did you come from yeah. a magazine beforehand as well? Yeah, Sounds. Uh, Jeff Barton used to, Jeff Barton did all the metal stuff on Sounds, and I used to phone him up saying, because I got into American imports and stuff like that, um, and I said, why haven't you reviewed this? Why haven't you reviewed that? And I was giving him all these obscure American bands he'd never heard of, and he said, well, you seem to know so much about it. Have a go. I said, well, I haven't really done much of that stuff. But I haven't even got a typewriter. And Jeff said, bring it in um, bring it in freehand. Just write it out freehand. So I just picked a couple of obscure albums, bands like Legs Diamond and, you know, or, or really obscure stuff. But he liked what I did. So he said, get a typewriter and start doing some stuff for sounds. And that's how it happened. Then I used to do an occasional imports um, column for Jeff. And that's that's basically it. <laughs> yeah. How, how did you find out about all the obscure bands? Because there was probably no, nobody in England covering them at the time. I know. Well, I just used to go, because I lived in Notting Hill Gate in London at the time. And Virgin Records, um, that's back in the days when it was a really good record shop, had a really good import section. And the guy who ran the store always got these really obscure, because he liked rock. He just got all these obscure bands in. So I'd just go in there and he'd actually let me listen to them in the shop. So if I, I'd listen to them. If I like them, I'd buy them. So I wasn't risking it, trying to think, oh, am I going to waste five pounds buying this import? Five pounds was a lot of money back then. I'm talking about like late 70s. And I used to just go in there and buy my records. And I just used to, they used to have cushions at the back of the store. You could just sit there and put the headphones on. And that was my way of finding American music because punk was sort of quite popular in England at the time. Much as I liked some of it, I got a bit bored with it. So that's why I started going to America for my music. Yeah. <laughs> Were you, were you a fan of the new wave British heavy metal at all? Yeah, some of it. Um, you know, I, I used to see bands, you know, I used to see Maiden back in the day at Neil Kay's Soundhouse. You know, they had the famous Soundhouse tapes and there was, um, you know, Diamond Head and all those bands. But, you know, because you could see them every week, it was, get, you know, that's why I suddenly thought, well, I could see this every week. I want, I want something different now. So that's how I got into the American stuff more. I mean, I liked, I liked all the, the, the sound of the bands that used to play out there you know, praying mantis and all those sort of bands, and um, it was it was quite good fun. And but I I just like I like the broader horizon of music, so that's how I got into the American stuff, really. Yeah, and did did you get a lot of um, feedback from people who bought sounds that it was great that you were actually covering that music at all? Did you? Yeah, I did actually. Yeah, yeah, I did. There was quite a few people wrote in and said, it's, "Oh, it's about time someone covered these sort of bands." And I, you know, I I, I reviewed Sticks when they were like nothing, and. You know, then Alan Freeman suddenly played them on Radio 1. And this is when Sticks were on a even different, before A&M, on Wooden Nickel or some obscure label like that. And suddenly everyone was into Sticks. And this is before they went Bobby. They were quite sort of more progressive, um, almost almost like um, almost like Pro Rock, some of their early stuff. Yeah. And were, were you involved with the, the first Kerrang! issue at all, or did you come on board later? No, because I, I was actually still writing for Sounds at the time. 
and Jeff was still sort of hovering between the two. Because I don't know if you know the story of Kerrang. The first one, that first dummy issue with ACDC on the cover, it was just like a one-off magazine, and they they put it out to see how it would do. And of course, it did very well. And then that's when they decided to sort of pursue it further. Then I came in around issue number eighteen, um, and I and I said to Jeff, "Look, what shall I do?" He said, "Look, write under a pseudonym for now." So I, in one issue, I wrote under the name ZF Gore, because <laughs> 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 uh, Z was my Z's another people call me Z because I'm always telling people that my name's spelt with an X, but it's pronounced with a Z. And it was, it, they said, I oh, will just review this Santana album. I said, well, that's not really correct. That doesn't matter. It's your way of getting into the magazine. Um, and then, then to cut a long story sideways, I went to America in 82 and I phoned Jeff up. I said, look, Motley Crue, I can get in there. This is before they were really known in England. I said, they're playing up in uh, California with Y&T. Um, do you want me to go and see him? And he went, yeah, yeah, go and do it. So I actually managed to get hold of Nikki Six. And he said, yeah, come along. And they were playing Concord Pavilion. And that was the time I got ha- someone handed me this Metallica tape. And no one had heard of them then. And Metallica had recently relocated from San Francisco, uh, from LA to San Francisco. And that, that and on top of the wine. So I did the Y&T interview, phoned Jeff up and said, look, there's this other band out here called Metallica. Do you want me to have a look at them? He goes, yeah, yeah, check them out. And then I saw them and the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. And were you living in this? Did you go over like just for a couple of weeks or did you actually relocate to the, to the States then? No, no. I, I used to go. I have friends out there so I could just get cheap. You know, back in the days we could get standby and when there were still airlines like TWA and Pan Am, I used to fly over for like 80 quid and just stay at friends house and crash on the floor and stay out for a month, you know, do a load of bands and then come back again. Because I, I had a dual job. My other job's film editing. Because I'm in the film industry, so you know the Kerrang thing was sort of a slight hobby, if you if you see what I mean. Yeah, and like, were were you kind of doing these features for Kerrang, or were they going to yes, be in sounds? So once, yeah, so once once like once the Motley Crue one happened, that went into Kerrang. Then I suddenly became a regular for Kerrang on the top of that Motley Crue, and then of course I did the first Metallica one. And I remember it was called MUA, what Metal Up Your Ass was what they actually called it, because they had that famous T-shirt with that logo on it. And then, I, of course, I saw the original lineup of Metallica in this club. They were playing with a group called Lars Rocket. So there was still Ron McGovney was the bass player. It's pretty cliff. And obviously Mustaine was still in the band with um, Hetfield. Yeah, so what did you think of Metallica the first time you saw them? Did, did, that, did that music excite you? It did. Though, what was weird about it was I was given this tape, and I just forgot about it and put it in my pocket. And Ron Quintana, who had a, a, a Metal Mania fanzine, which he wanted to call Metallica, but Lars quick, very sensibly got the name off him and turned it into his band. So when I first saw them, I thought it was like Ted Nugent on speed. It was absolutely brilliant. And I saw that this place called the Old Wardorf, which is this club. It's in the financial district of uh, San Francisco. And they were, middle, they were middle on the bill. But the minute I saw them, it's just the intense energy that came out for that band was unbelievable. Yeah. And I actually said to Lars afterwards, and this is 1981, right, or 82, I said, in 10 years' time, you'll probably be the biggest band in the planet. And of course, 10 years later, the famous Black Album comes out. <laughs> yeah, that's all the few. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, I helped get them to go over to Europe, and then I helped get Mensch to manage them and stuff like that. So I did a lot for them in their early career before they got big. So it was quite nice to actually sort of be, be in on something at the beginning, and no one else had seen them really. Hardly anyone ever saw them with Mustaine in the band. Yeah. And that and that was the best Metallica for me because it was like when you have Mustaine and Hetfield on the stage together, it was like two, looking at two brothers who didn't really get on. <laughs> yeah. Now, Xavier, did you go drinking with the Metallica guys at all? Lots. <laughs> <laughs> you remember any of it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of it. Well, they used to like drinking Carlsberg Elephant, which is in oh. England is called... Do you know, have you seen Carlsberg Elephants? Have you ever drunk that? Is that special brew? Yeah, that's what they call it in America. It's got an elephant on the um, can. But in England, it's called special brew. But the actual American one tastes nicer. I always found special brew too sweet because it was so strong. Because the stronger the beer, the sweeter it tastes. Yeah. And yes, I used to drink. And they used to drink. They used also, also used to like absolute vodka. And they put it in the freezer so it'd come out all gooey. And then you'd, you'd have a few shots of that and then drink about six cans of bloody special brew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Or, or, or Carlsberg Elephant. Because also, don't forget, Lars is Danish, so that's why he drank that beer. <laughs> yeah. Now, when Mustaine left Metallica, um, yeah. did you get to interview him pretty straight, like straight away or did you have to wait a while to talk to him about what actually happened? Like, were you friends well, with Dave at all? 
No, the weird thing is, I never really got to know Mustaine because the time I saw them live, the only one I really talked to was um, Hetfield and Hammett. No, Ham Hammett and Hetfield. Hammett wasn't in the band. It was really Lars and James. They were the only two I really knew. And Ron McGovney, he, he left and became an accountant or something, the, other, the original bass player. So I never really got to know Hep, um, Mustaine at all. And it was weird because, you know, I wanted to chat to him, but he was a bit out of it back then. So you couldn't really get anywhere near him. Yeah. And you, you said earlier on you used to be in the guide with all the Legs Diamond and all the hard rock stuff. You, now, you, yeah. you eventually ended up doing a lot of the trash stuff. Why do you think you ended up doing all that in, in ahead of all the rest of the guys? I don't know. I, I, it's because um, I, I, there was um, a, a trip offered to me. Jeff phoned me up because he knew because because of the whole Metallica thing. I still loved all the Legs Diamond type bands. Don't get me wrong, I still do. I like a huge broad spectrum of metal. Once I heard Metallica, I slowly got into Slayer. I didn't like the early Slayer stuff, but when when the classic album came out, um, you know, Rain in Blood, I just couldn't believe how good that was. And then um, Jeff phoned me up and said, "There's this group called Celtic Frost on Noise." Um, would you, and then Ray Palmer was the photographer I used to do quite a lot of trips with. He said, the, he said, it's the bad, he said, the bad news is it's a day return to Zurich. He said, but the good news is it's Celtic Cross. And I thought, okay, well, I'll, he let me, he sent me a tape of the album. I really liked it because it was so different and weird. And then I went out to do Noise. So I went out on that trip and it was really weird. When we got to, I was picked up at the airport by Tom Warrior or Tom Fisher as he's now known in his Trans Am car. And he says, do you mind if I play, um, something on the cassette deck when we come to back to the flat and they played Dean, Frank Sinatra. I thought, this is a bit odd. Anyway, so we get to the house and then the bass player, Martin Ain, says, do you mind if we do the interview in the black room? I went, okay, this sounds a bit dubious. Anyway, so this this panel in the wall slid back and me and Ray were just, we, I thought it was a wind-up. Anyway, we went into, into this black space and then you, you lost all sense of time. Then suddenly he lit this candle and there were two black candles on a table with a human skull in the middle, and all round the room were four original pictures by H.R. Giger, the alien guy. Oh. And then I did the interview of that, and it was the weirdest interview I've ever done, but it's one of the best, I think, as well. And then I became friends with the group after that. And then, of course, that noise thing, then they noise phoned me up and said, look, we've got this band called Creator, Trash Band. I said, oh, I'd let, and they played again, they sent it to me, and I loved it. And then Halloween, they sent me that. So I, I ended up doing lots of noise trips. And, I really got into German thrash, you know, bands like Destruction and all that. It was like Wagner sort of moved on 100 years. You see what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So do you, do you remember, I asked Malcolm Dome this question, he couldn't really remember. Do you remember the first live review you did for Kerrang? Live review? Yeah. Uh, Christ, uh, it's a hard one because, uh, it could have been, well, I did, I did review Metallica. Um I don't, and I also think I, I remember I reviewed um, Soft White Underbelly. Do you know who they are? No. <laughs> that's that's Blue Oyster Cult's other name when they play clubs. Wow. And I saw them in a club in San Francisco playing as Soft White Underbelly. Because before they were Blue Oyster Cult, they were Soft White Underbelly. So I did that as well. And then REO Speedwagon and Survivor in, in America. I think they were the early ones. Did. But I can't remember the actual first one I did, to be honest. Yeah. Do, do you remember you going to like Jeff or Dante to say, I want to go and review these bands or did they actually tell you where to go? It's a bit of both. Sometimes you find out, say like, oh, say like Halloween was playing in a club in Hamburg. I'd say, look, they, they got this gig. They're going to fly me out. Do you want me to do it? He said, who else is on the bill? I said, well, Grave Digger, Destruction, Celtic Frost. Yeah, yeah, off you go. Because Jeff, I don't know if you re remember, Jeff started doing all these offshoot magazines like Mega Metal Kerrang! Yeah, I remember that. And Extra Kerrang! So, so, when Mega Metal Kerrang came out, it meant we could do more trips because because in Mega Metal Kerrang you could get more space. So I used, and then Jeff would phone me up saying, you know, so and so is playing. Do you what? Do you fancy going to see Creator in Bochum, which is like an industrial part of Germany? And you knew, and I just knew that it was going to be bonkers there. And I never forget, I did do this show and I reviewed this one. Um, where's this guy who was slam diving off the monitors thirty feet with a with a cast on his leg where he'd broken it. <laughs> And he, and he landed and the cast broke again. And I said, well, why'd you do that? He said, well, it's already broken twice. I might as well break my leg again. That's <laughs> 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 what you call slam diving with a difference. <laughs> wow. Brilliant. Wow. So I had, you know, 
there were some great times and you know you do you go to nice cities and bad cities i mean i went to some really weird places in germany as well <laughs> yeah a lot of the trash bands like they weren't none of them were really on well except for likes of metallica and anthrax and the big four they were all on yeah. they were all on like music for nations and noise these labels that didn't exactly have a, a shitload of money for big junkets so you probably had to go here there and everywhere yeah well, noise always seemed to have money, you know, to put you, you know, I mean, they literally fly you in and fly you out again. But at least they did put you up and they looked after you and they always gave you enough beer to keep you going. Um, and the Music for Nations was the same because I still, you know, I still get on with Jim Howard who sort of co-ran it. And, um, you know, they, they were instrumental in getting Metallica over to Europe and they sort of funded all, you know, doing the Ride of the Lightning album. And Metallica coming to Europe was, was they got bigger in Europe before they got bigger in America. Yeah. Yeah, and that was all through Music for Nations, and of course, then Peter Mensch came along and took them off and put them on Electra. But you know, they could have easily stayed on Music for Nations and made exactly the same amount of money. Yeah. So, but you know, Metallica knew they had to come to Europe to get big, and it worked. Yeah, what well, you're talking, we're talking a little bit like there about Halloween. Are you talking around the Keeper of the Seven Keys records? Is that the time? No, I'm talking. I'm talking before that. I'm talking Walls of Jericho. Okay. Oh, get Kai Hansen. I, I love Walls of Jericho. I mean, I like the Keeper album. It's different. Well, I don't know if you know that Halloween are going out this year with all the original singer as well. That's right, yeah. And kids. They're doing this big big tour. Yeah, hopefully they'll get over here, but we'll see. Yeah. But they're, Did they're, you like Halloween? Oh, I love them. Love them. We, yeah. we had one of the weirdest interviews ever with <laughs> Michael Vicat last year. We were, oh, he's, he's, he's nuts, but in a nice way. <laughs> yeah, but it, it wasn't actually his fault. It was the tour manager screwed up the times and everything. We got cut off halfway through a question. And anyway, it's, right. <laughs> yeah, but um, when I when I look at Halloween, I they were a lot, a lot of people thought that they were going to be the natural successors to Iron Maiden, and they, they just made some really bad musical decisions. They um, did. They uh, should never have done that pink bubbles go yeah. shit, as I call it. Yeah, Not yeah. Pink, well, pink bubbles go shite, is what it's Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the Keeper albums are great, and I, but I still like the Walls of Jericho era best. Um, and, I, and I think, um, you know, Kai Hansen shouldn't... He didn't really want to be a lead singer. He, I, I thought his voice was fine on um, Walls of Jericho, but when he left, I think part of Halloween died, although, the, you know, Michael kissed the other singer was good but i just think and after that after the two keeper rounds they, they actually became part of iron maiden's management didn't they they went over with um sanctuary yep and i don't and rod i think took them on because everyone says they sound like maiden i thought well, that's a funny reason to take a band on but uh, then they didn't get on and then even uh, tom tom warrior and celtic frost ended up under sanctuary and he fell out with them as well so yeah. it, was, it was an odd time, but you know Rod's still great, and Maiden is still going. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We're going to go and see him in um, in July. I think Ghost are playing with them over here. You know, course, Bruce Dickinson. Now, you know, apart from being a pilot in a plane as well, he's got his own. He he, he does all this beer now, and we had a beer tasting for the new Iron. You know, have you, can you get Iron Maiden Trooper beer over there? Yeah, yeah, yeah we've had some. Yeah, can you get? Can you get? Have, have you seen the other one? Six six six. Yeah, we haven't. The six 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 was really hard to find, but we do see the uh, the uh, red and black porter around now. Oh well, that is the six six six. Then we see oh, no, the, the six six six. Oh no, red and, sorry, red and black porter is the one that's just come out. That's supposed to be a bit like Guinness. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's like Guinness. I said to Bruce, "What were you trying to achieve with that?" He said, "Well, people sometimes people think Guinness is too heavy to drink, so I wanted to create a drink that's a cross between Guinness and real ale." Hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. It's nice beer. It, it, it's not as heavy as Guinness, is it? No, and I know I'm, I'm Irish. I love my pint of Guinness. Yeah. So. <laughs> Whatever happened to Murphy's? Is that still going? I don't see that at all now. Yeah, that's um, that's Cork. That's a Cork brewery. Um, Murphy's still yeah, going. I yeah. See, I, I used to see Murphy's everywhere. I, I can't see it at all. I don't see it at all much now. Is it just in Ireland now? It probably is. Yeah, I I haven't been over there that much. I'm living over here six years. So uh, yeah. I just wondered, can you get Murphy's over there? No, I've never seen it. It's Guinness. Guinness yeah. or nothing. We used to see Murphy's in London all the time. And the other one you used to see is Caffrey's. Yeah, that's Kilkenny. That's an ale, yeah. That's an ale, though, I know. But I don't see that much now, either. All right. Okay. Which is odd. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we digress. But, um, but we used to do But also, I got known as the Bourbon Baron because I was always doing these southern rock bands, you know, like Molly Hatchet, Doc Holiday. And then I did a I did a, a bourbon tasting thing with Metallica and Girls School. And then we also did another one uh, with Rock Goddess, Metallica, and Girls School with drinking real ale. 
And would you believe Rock Goddess and Girls School drank Metallica under the table? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could believe that. <laughs> who, who comes up? Who comes up with all these ideas? Like, you're, well, you're ta- I, I actually, when Jeff, I actually went to Jeff and said, "Look, well, how about doing a tasting? You know, with all the different bands." He said, "Oh, go on, then do it." And then he, he'd either put it in the extra Kerrang or normal Kerrang. And then we, remember Kerrang used to have View from the Bar. Yes. Yeah. So you know, it's, it was like an offshoot of that because it was always about people getting pissed with bands and stuff. So I thought, well, let's try and let's do a tasting thing. And then that's how that came about. And it was good fun to do. You know, you know these bands like to drink. And if someone else is paying for it, they'll drink even more. <laughs> yeah, so what, what about the Anthrax guys? Did you have any relationship with them at all in the 80s? Yeah, no, I, I, Scott, Scott Ian, he's a big... He, I, I got to know him through Metallica, and then he became a big Celtic Frost fan. So, we you know, whenever there was, say, Celtic Frost was in New York and I was there, he, he'd always phone up, you know, can we, can we meet up and go down to the gig? And, um, you know, it's weird I bumped into him in an airport a couple of years ago. And um, actually, Anthrax are playing in London, Kentish Town, next Friday. So I'm going to go and see them. Nice. I think they're doing the whole of Among the Living. That's it, Among the Living. Among the Ligging, we call it. (laughs) (laughs) Or Among the Swigging. (laughs) Die like an Indian. (laughs) Yeah, so um, what about the Slayer guys? Did you have uh, any relationship with any of them? Yeah, because uh, it's funny, in the early days, when uh, pre-Hella Waits and all that, I, I slagged them off in one one review somewhere. Oh, that's right, me and there, there used to be a writer called Paul Souter. Yeah, I remember him. He, and he used to do, like, he loved all these female fronted, cause he, he loved every, anything Canadian or anything with a maple leaf on it, because he loved Canadian rock. Anyway, we this I think this was in uh, Extra Crank, we did a Janet and John guide to heavy metal, but just slagging off all these bands. And it was a real cross-section. It wasn't just thrash. It was like AOR. And he was Janet and I was John. (laughs) (laughs) And we we did it over a bottle of Jägermeister. And everyone said it was brilliant because we were just pissed doing it. And then I had a real go at Slayer. And then Tom Tom Morea said, oh, you really hated us back then, but you liked us when, you know. I said, well, when Rain and Blood came out, you actually became a proper band. And then that's, you know, I love Rain in Blood. I think, I think it's probably the best thrash album, you know, production and everything, songs. That I, you know, it's even better than, it's up there with Metallica, I'd say, about the level, it, it may be even better. Yeah. Now, now, one of the things Malcolm said to us uh, when I asked him about, like, like a, a vivid memory of Kerrang, he said he was out with Scott Ian the day that they heard that uh, Cliff Burton passed away in a bar. Were you, were you there as well? No, I was uh, I was working in, what the, what year was it? 1887, 18... was it? 87? Yeah, I was, yeah, I, yeah, I remember I was abroad when it happened because I got asked to do an obituary, which never got run because it was too controversial. Yeah. Um, I didn't, because it was, I called it Trapped Under Ice, which is what happened. You know, they, you know, they were, they were, they were on a road um, and I did it from like Cliff's point of view. And, you know, because I knew that Cliff wasn't, Cliff loved all sorts of music. You'd see him in a Blue Oyster Cult t-shirt. He loved Leonard Skinner. He loved it. It's weird. He was like different to the rest of the band. He liked all sorts of music. So I actually got to know him quite well. So, so I did this obituary, but Dante said it was too controversial to run. So they never ran it. <laughs> yeah. Now, all the second-tier thrash bands, the likes of, I was a massive, and I still am a massive fan of uh, Dead Angel and Testament and, and all oh, these yeah, guys. Oh, yeah, yeah, I like some of them. Yeah. You, would, you have a, would you have interviewed those guys in the 80s as well? No, I, Exodus, I think I did. Uh, would you call them second layer? Probably, yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, it's weird. Because it's, when the second layer came out, you know, I was more into the German stuff then. So I tended to, I tended to do more of that than other, other people. Um, who's Don K? Do you remember Don K? Yeah, I remember Don. Well, I think he's, I think, I, I don't know where he's based now, but last time I saw him was in New York. He, he started doing all those sort of bands. So I, I, I just moved across to the German bands. Yeah. Because I, I was spending more time in Europe as well then. Yeah, did, did, well, I didn't do many of the American second ones. I mean, I saw them all, you know, um, Overkill and bands like that, um, and all the American, you know. But you know, also I love love bands like Except and all those. So I was getting more into European stuff then. Yeah. Now, as as the years went by and you're writing for Kerrang, was it was there any were you off, ever offered any big junkets like where you go away for three or four weeks with a band or with a couple of bands, maybe? In- Not three or four weeks, but I did the road trip with Metallica and Armored Saint. Which was um, about when Master of Puppets came out, I think, mm. and it, that was for extra Kerrang. And Jeff said, "You've got to make sure 
because uh, Mitch was managing both bands. He says, we've got to make sure that you could, you, you know, it's got to be armored same because they're, they're paying for the trip. He said, do Metallica by any means. But so I did this big interview with Armored Saint, then I turned the Metallica part of it into a road trip. And I was on the road, because we went from LA down to San Diego, then back up to LA again. Um, and Ross Halpin, the famous photographer, was with me. They said, I'm not doing any pictures on the bus. I said, you got to, it's a bloody road trip. <laughs> anyway, so he went to his bunk, listen, listen to this. So I said to, I said to Lars and James, I said, look, Ross has got to take a picture because we're doing this as a road trip. So they said, right, we'll go, we'll go and piss on him and then we'll get him out of his bed. <laughs> so, so they pulled his thing back and they had this, they said, right, we're going to piss on you unless you take a picture. They, he took one black and white picture and went straight back to bed. And that was the picture they used, this black and white one. That's <laughs> <laughs> a true story, that. <laughs> wow. So that was, that was a good road trip. Then I went up, you know, I've been on the road. Oh, the other time I went on road was a southern rock band called Dot Holiday. Yes, heard of them. So I, did, I did a good road trip with them down in Charles... You know, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, when they were on an independent label in America. This would be about 85, 86. And this was a good story. They took me to this um, army base radio station. And, you know, it's quite Bible Belt down there. So I thought, right, I'm going to play all this satanic stuff. So anyway, I started playing all this Slayer and all, you know, Celtic Frost destruction, creator. Then suddenly the phones were going red hot. Who's that fucking devil worshipper, English guy? We're going to come down there and kill him. <laughs> so they had to smuggle me out in this American army jeep. And then there's all these Bible bashers coming down to the bloody radio station. So that was good fun. And then um, going on the road with a southern rock band, you really have to learn how to drink because they love all the bourbon and stuff. And, I said, and he gave me this horrible green liquid the next day. I said, what the fuck's this? And he says, this, what the, he says, what the Jack Daniels takes out, this puts back in, and it was something called Gatorade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Did you drunk that stuff? It's oh, wild. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's for, it is anyway, wild. Anyway, got the hangover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the one thing I've often wanted to ask the, the, the Kerrang writers when they went on these road trips, like when you're doing an interview with a, with a guy and you're going to their hotel suite and you've got half an hour, if the thing turns yeah. to shit, you've only got half an hour. If you're on the road with a van for three or four days and you don't you don't hit, hit it off from the get-go, you're fucked. Yeah, you are, yeah. Well, luckily, it's, it's a bit like, you know, because I'm, I'm a film editor as well, so when I work with a director, part of my job's almost like being a psychiatrist, so you have to tune into the people you're with. And sometimes you, you can tell if you're going to get on with a band or not. So you sort of ease your way in and you just drop casual conversation. And I say, oh, it'd be great if we could just catch 10 minutes there. And then you're, suddenly you're talking to them and they don't realise they don't realise you're taping them. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. it's, it's getting their trust. Whereas with the Metallica thing, I kept saying, when should we do this bloody interview on this road trip? He said, I want to do it on the coach. And that's exactly what we did in the end. We just, because they kept saying, oh, let's do it in the dressing room. But they never want to do that because they're about to go on and they're about to come off. And then sometimes you just go back to their room and do it and chat there. But I went, because it was a road trip, it made sense to actually do it on the tour bus. And that worked very well. But yeah, I've, I've done, I did an interview. My heroes were Blue Oyster Cult. I did one interview with Donald Butadama in the studio when they were doing the Revolution by Night album. Hmm. And I was just tongue-tied. I just, I couldn't do I, It was just a crap interview. And it, and it was weird. Years later, have you heard of Rock Candy Records? Derek yeah, so yeah, De- yeah, Derek. So I have a lot. Yeah, of, well, I have, have a lot of the stuff. Yeah, well, they, well, he re, they reissued Buck Dharma's solo album called Flat Out, and I did the notes for it. And I said, "Do you remember that interview?" He said, "Yeah." He said, "You just didn't know what to say, and it was awkward for me. I wasn't really in the mood to talk." And you know, the actual when I played the tape back, it was about ten minutes long. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> how, do, how do I string this out? So yes, you can get you, you can get tongue tied. But it's, sometimes it's with your heroes. And when you meet them, you think they're... they're Albert Bouchard, the drummer who, who left and then came back, I filled out two 120 tapes with him. Wow. So it varies. <laughs> it, it, it is weird, though, Xavier, that sometimes the drummers are the guys that actually talk the most because nobody does interviews with them. <laughs> I know. We see, the trouble with Lars is he bloody runs metallic. <laughs> Everyone's going on about, oh, he's not the best drummer in the world. He can't keep time. He can't keep up. I said, yeah, but he, you know, he is Metallica. He's what, he, he's what, he, he's what drives the band and he's the motor mouth, you know, so that, that he's the one. And who's the other? There's another, there's a story. Sammy Hagar's got this um, place down in Mexico when he, you know, he has that, he, he has that um, tequila. Yeah, Cabo Wabo. Gabo Wabo, right. Well, he, he, there's a club down there where he, where he has these jams. So you have Michael Anthony on bass. I believe it was Steve Stills and Lars was on drums. And then Steve Stills said, can you get bloody drummer off stage? You can't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> 
the other ones I've had got on quite well was with Journey. They were quite, you know, every so they're really difficult and awkward. Neil Sean's one of the nicest blokes I've ever met. So it's weird. Sometimes people say, oh, this band's going to be real trouble. You're not going to get anywhere near them. And then you, they end up being really good. But Ted Nugent's another one. He just chatted for hours. <laughs> yeah, no, no, interesting you bring up Neil, Sean and Journey, because in the 80s, Journey never toured in, in England at all, as far as I, can, I know. So you're going over they, interviewing... They came over a couple of times. They played Hammersmith with Pat Travers. Do you remember Pat Travers? Yes, oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, but they, they, do you know why they didn't come to England? Steve Perry. Oh. He, he, he didn't like Europe much. That's why the rest of Journey wanted to come. Yeah. So he goes to Japan, they go to all around America. Uh, Steve Perry just apparently, that's what I've been told, didn't like Europe. So that's why they didn't come there, though. Yeah, I'm sure what the stories at the time they were saying was, um, oh, we're, we're busy in the States. We don't have, you know, we don't have any scheduling to get over there and all this political blah, blah, blah. And it was Steve Perry the whole time. Yeah. But Perry, Perry, was, the, Perry was the big head in the band. So it's like, because he was the one that said, oh, I'm the one that made Journey big, which is, it, to, you know, to his, to his credit, it probably is. But at the same time, it was a bit like um, when Rat got big, Stephen Pearce, he always had his own dressing room. It was a bit like that with Journey. Yeah. So did you? The other three, the other three were came from Santana's backing band. Right. Yeah. So, so did did you interview all the the hair metal guys like the Motley Crue's and the Rat and all these? Bands? Yeah. Well, I told you that Motley Crue. I mean, yeah. Motley, they were nuts. Motley Crue. I mean, when they go used to go around. There's a classic story. They used to go around biting people. See, they're going to have to go and have tetanus shots. There was a European tour they did with Iron Maiden in the mid '80s. I think it's around the time of Girls, Girls, Girls. And there was this party after after the show. The show was at Wembley. And there's a party just off Oxford Street. And Motley Crue went round spiking everybody's drinks with laxative. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anyone who, and anyone who had a cocktail, you know, I, I, I stuck to beer, so I was all right. But everyone the next day, people went, oh, God, I got the shits from that place. <laughs> and the fucking Motley Crue did that. <laughs> And they take people and they take people into the toilet and shake them upside down looking for drugs, and then they go around biting everybody. And then they live the rock and roll life to the full. And Nicky Six was actually quite intelligent, but he just played the whole rock star thing to the absolute maximum. Yeah, no, there's certain. Do you ever go to the Rainbow? Have you been in the Rainbow Bar and Grill? I haven't been in LA for a long you know time. Yeah, well, you know, you don't. You could go in there any night, and there'd always be, you know, Blackie Lawless from Wasp. And then in later years, Lemmy, Lemmy lived in there virtually because he lived just behind it. But any night you could go in there, be Rat, Motley Crue, Poison, all those sort of bands in there. And I said to Lars, because when, when they were living in LA, he said, we, were just, we, we, we just weren't part of that scene. That's why they relocated to San Francisco, because they, they knew they couldn't get arrested in LA. Yeah. Now, who, who, was, who, who do you think was the most down-to-earth musician you interviewed in Kerrang! over the years? Like A lot of people point to like Ozzy, that Ozzy has never really changed. No, Ozzy hasn't changed. I, really, I never really got to know Ozzy. Um, I would, down to earth, I would say um, probably Tom, Tom Gabriel, Tom Warrior, Celtic Prost. Oh, no, oh, Millie from Creator. When you actually meet him, you, you, he's the most mild-mannered, you know, he's got that type voice. When you actually meet him, he's the most mild-mannered person you could ever meet. So he, he's very down to earth. <coughs> um, uh, I'm trying to think of some others. Um, but I think I'm probably Tom Fisher's most intelligent that I've interviewed. Yeah, well, let's swing it the other way. Oh, then. And I quite like the Halloween guys. They were quite nice and down to earth. Okay, let's swing it. Vicat, what I liked about Michael Vicat, he's just mad. <laughs> <laughs> he would just, you'd ask him a question, he'd give you a totally different answer. Then yeah. you'd ask him something different to get the right answer. That happened to me. He gave, Did it? Okay. Yeah, I, I asked him a question about, you know, what, the metal and rock radio playing in, in Europe at the moment. Does Halloween get played a lot? And he went, I don't know. And that was the that was the answer, and I'm like, uh, and so next silly question. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's swing it the other way then. What what guys did you interview? You think had had the biggest egos that they were difficult that they were difficult to nail down? Like you know, they didn't really want to be there. That that one Buck Dharma interview was difficult because he just didn't didn't really want to talk that time. Um, I haven't really had many other difficult ones. I've had boring ones, but I'm just trying to think. You know, it's just what's it like? This song, it's good. What do you think of it? Yeah, it's very good. Riff. You know, it's a real, real Janet and John type. Um, and you say you used to say, "Why well, did you get the idea of the studio?" 
oh, I just go out to the toilet, sit down and write it, you know. So, <laughs> like if you look at a rap song, Midnight Subway Train, he's calling all the shots. You know, it's just ridiculous lyrics because, you know, that some bands just don't think about their lyrics. Whereas you get a band like The Tubes, do you remember The Tubes? Yeah. All their songs are, you know, they're all session musicians. So, they, you know, they write good songs and the lyrics are quite funny. So, you know, there's different types of music, different types of things. And, you know, you know, I like that boogie band Foghat. Do you remember them? Yep. yep. Yeah, they're, they're still going. People say, well, and you ask anyone in England, what do you think of Foghat? They go, well, they are half English, but nobody's heard of them. Yeah. So, Xavier, what did you think of um, the English trash bands that came out at, like towards the le- end of the late 80s, like the likes of Onslaught? Um, oh, I quite like Onslaught. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what was that song? That was, was it them where had a song called Metal Forces? Yeah, I think metal. so. Yeah, yeah. Well, we called it we called it Metal Farces because you know there's a magazine called Metal Forces. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, but if people say, why is it called Metal Forces? Because you've got to force yourself to read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, we had quite. A, we, I, I had quite a sort of because um, Bernard Doe, who who wrote Metal Forces, he was very serious, and I always like to be quite comical about stuff, and so that's why I sort of had always had a little pop at Metal Forces. Yeah. <laughs> It used to be. It seems to me like we've been talking to Malcolm and yourself that the Kerrang environment was like it was a lot of fun to work there. That you know you'd throw ideas against the wall and not all of them would stick, and then you'd go off and you'd do some ideas and you'd get them done, and you'd be like, "How the hell did we get this past anybody?" There seems to be a, a, a you know a good vibe that used to be a really good vibe there in the eighties. It was uh, Kerrang was brilliant from about uh, well mid eighties right through to about ninety three four. And then I think it started to go downhill. I mean, today it's like a comic. I wouldn't even read it today. No. Um, I mean, have you seen a recent one? I haven't bought Kerrang! in about 20 years. No, you're not missing much. <laughs> but back then, <laughs> back then you, you had real characters there, like Crusher Jewel, who did the design, um, Mark Putterford, who sadly died. I, wrote, I co-wrote a Metallica book with him. Um, and Crusher, Dante, everyone. We, I mean, everyone got on Mick Wall. We'd all go out and have drinks. It was like there was no real egos. Everyone really got on. So it was like, let's try and make this magazine fun. And it was always like, you know, <coughs> let's, what could we do that other magazines don't do? So we started doing a film page and, you know, review horror films. And we did little chainsaw ratings. You know, instead of stars, we had little five chainsaws. meant it was a really gory film. So it's little things, just little things like that, trying to make it more wacky. And view from the bar, how far could we push the envelope with it? Do you see what I mean? I used to love that, Xavier. It was very funny. Yeah, and it was good. And then they then sat down again, they'd say, oh, let's put prints on the cover or something like that, just to shock people. You think, hey? And then some someone else would get really narked about it. But, you know, putting ACDC on cover one was a no-brainer, really. So it's like... But now and again, they would take risks and put, you know, old people on the cover. Yeah. Were you were you a fan when the magazine went from being every two weeks to every week? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was better every two because it meant you, I don't know, it became, because you start with a weekly magazine, you start padding things out a bit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it was better when it was bi-weekly, but, you know, it became, it became so popular that it did go weekly. Yeah. So w- one other thing about them. Um, when we were talking to Malcolm, I asked him, like, did you ever become good friends with any of the musicians? And he said, not good friends, he said, friendly. Would that be the same with you? Yeah, um, yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's the same. You know, I keep in touch with Tom Warrior, um, Lars. You know, like Lars used to send me postcards all the time. But, you know, as you grow big, you know, as you grow older and different, you know, your, your lifestyle changes a bit. And if I see Malcolm, you know, I went... Um, where was it? I saw Metallica. Oh, yeah, they played. They played recently in London at this um, House of Fans under Waterloo Station to promote the new album. Mm-hmm. And I got invited along to that, but the lot, and then I couldn't actually meet him that night. But I met them. I went and saw them at Reading last year. And do you know Stefan Chirazzi? Yeah, Stefan. Yeah, he writes for the fan club. He writes the That's magazine. Right, well, he, well, he used to write for Kerrang. So I just bumped into him in the field because I just had a normal pass. So I'll oh, come back. They want to see you. So you know, I went back and chatted with him. And, and Kirk Hammett was, you know, I've always got very well with him as well. And I was, back, I was back there for, you know, for a good two hours. So it's like, you know, it's almost like just winding the clock back again. Yeah, but, you know, these days I do film editing and more than I do the writing. Yeah, Although I do a lot, of, you know, I still do rock candy stuff. Yeah, and I've just, oh, I don't know if you know that they're reissuing all these noise albums. Oh, right. Excellent. Yeah. And I've just, I've done, a, I've done all the sleeve notes for the Celtic Frost reissues. Nice. Um, and they're coming out, 
They're coming out through, um, I think it's BMG or Sanctuary. And Tom Warriors remixed them all. And then the Malcolm's done the creator ones. Uh, I'm not sure who's done the Halloween ones, but, you know, they're re-releasing all the noise back catalogue. And good. Tom's really gone, gone to town on it. I mean, he's, we've got all these new photos. He's got old remixes and things like that. So they're going to be real good collect. So he's got his thoughts in it. I've got my thoughts in it. And another guy called Steve Hammonds, who used to do sort of on the sidelines of Kareem, he wasn't really a writer, but he, he did a lot of fantasies. He, he's the one that got me involved in it. So it's been good. And the other ones I did were Tankards, you know, the fresh alcoholic yeah. band. Yeah, I remember noise them. Love them. So I did all the sleeve notes for their out reissues as well. And he's a very good character. I always got well with him, Jer, the singer, because they just take the piss out of metal and all the, and just all the songs are about alcohol, which is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> You know, to have to have a song called Empty Tankers, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when did you see the writing on the wall with you, with Kerrang? Like, I'm, I'm unsure now when you actually left. Was there was there one thing that happened or was it like a, a conglomeration of a lot of things where you went, look, I'm, i got to get out of here? I got a bit disillusioned about 94, 95. And, and all, the, all the original good writers started to leave it. And the music changed a bit, and I just got—it's more—it's more about me getting disillusioned with the music at the time than the actual magazine. And I thought, well, do you know what? I need a break from this. And then I started getting more drama work on television, so I started doing shows like This Life and um, Musketeers, and that—that that took over me more now. <clears throat> and then about five or six years ago, and about nine, about two thousand and nine, uh, Metallica tried to trace me down because they got inducted to the Music Hall of Fame. And anyone who helped their career got flown out to Cleveland to be to be part of it. So they had a big flight. So me, I went out with Jim Howard from Music for Nations. And then then they said, "Oh, do you want to write about that?" So I did something for Classic Rock on that. And then that's how I slowly got back into writing again. So it's quite odd that it was Metallica actually got me back into it again. Yeah. Did you find Did you find that like the guys in Kerrang? Um, I'm, I'm, was uh, Was Jeff gone around ninety three, ninety four? Dante was definitely gone. No, Jeff was still there, and then Jeff, Jeff went over to Future, and then Jeff started doing classic rock, and then Jeff drifted out. He went off and did a car magazine for a few years, and then he came back, and I'm not sure what Jeff's doing now, because I know he left classic rock, you know, when it recently, when it got sold off to the other mob, <clears throat> and I, I don't know what happened to Jeff, and then, you know, I've always kept in touch with people like Malcolm and all that, and then Malcolm's got me, like, sleeve notes and stuff to do as well. And then, and then he suggests me for things he can't do. So, you know, that's what's good about it. We all keep in touch with each other. Yeah. One, one of the things I always found with Kerrang, especially when grunge broke, is it kind of took the piss out of the bands from the 80s that actually made the magazine big. Um, I know. I, I, was a bit, I was a bit cross about that. <laughs> I thought, why do that? You know, because actually, you know, to be honest, I actually I found grunge a bit fucking annoying. I, I just found it a bit boring. I mean, I was one of the few people who didn't like Nirvana. They said, why don't you like them? I said, I just don't like them. <laughs> I said, give me destruction or slayer any day of the week. <laughs> yeah, did, did you interview any of the grunge guys at all? No, because I didn't like the music. So it's pointless asking me. Because if I had interviewed them, I'd have slagged them off. Yeah, so they, didn't, they said, no, you can't. <laughs> no. Yeah, but sometimes, so, sometimes, Xavier, that can be bad if you actually like uh, the band. Like, you want a guy to go in like and be... Like objective, right? You know what I mean? Oh, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm just being silly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I got sometimes there was a band called Spider, an English boogie band, a bit like Status Quo, mm -hmm. and I slagged them off once. Um, they were playing with Saxton and Girls School at this big place in Leeds, and I never really did like them. And I just said, poor man, Status Quo. Anyway, at Donington Festival that year, I think Van Halen was headlining it. They came up to me. Said, oh, you didn't. We didn't like your review, and they just put. They took my hat. I had a cap on. Took my cap off and just put three eggs on my head. So that's part. That's part of being a journalist. You just got to accept it. And yeah. I said thanks. And it was a hot day. I said I like my eggs fried, actually. And the sun was because the sun was on there. <laughs> and the manager came up and apologised. And I said they shouldn't have done it. I said look. I said that's part and parcel of being a journalist. You're always going to upset someone. And then they were, they were trying, ever since then, they were always extra polite to me. I said, look, you, you said you, you felt like that. You felt like that at the time. You know, I'm, I'm freedom of speech. I said what I thought, and you put eggs on my head. You know, that's part of it. So, yeah, so I have, you know, 
it's payback, I suppose. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things I used to love about Kerrang. Um, you weren't afraid to call something crap if you felt it was crap. Like, you weren't, um, no, you know, you weren't like, oh shit, we have to say it's good, otherwise the record no, no, aren't no. going to give us all these other bands. I slagged off. When, do you remember Guns N' Roses first came over to England? Yeah. They played the marquee, and they were really messy back then, and they are all fucked up on whatever. Anyway, and Malcolm was a big fan, and, it, and I reviewed the first marquee show, and I just said it was all poor. And Axel was looking for me, wanted to put my lights out and everything. And everyone said to him, look, you were rubbish that night. And he went, yeah, it doesn't matter. You know, you shouldn't have said that. And, you know, I just said what I felt at the time. And, yeah, I like, you know, I like the scenes and I like the music. Because an EP had just come out. But I, they were rubbish that night. I wasn't going to say they were good. And they were like the, the, the new hot thing. But apparently the next night they were better. I said, well, why couldn't you review that night? I said, no, I couldn't. I, was, I reviewed the night you were rubbish. So, you know, I said they were rubbish in Kerrang. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, no, you, you if, meant, if I didn't like something, I'd, I'd, I'd say it was rubbish. Yeah. You mentioned a minute ago status quo. Did you have any, uh, did you have any uh, conversations in the past with Rick Parfit at all? No, it was weird because I never really did see I Everyone said to me, what, what do you think of Kerrang? I said, well, I prefer Foghat. I said, who are they? I said, well, they're the, they're the English-American status quo. And, and the weird thing is, recent, I saw status quo recently, but I didn't go to see them. I went to see the support band. There was a band called Oreo Speedwagon. <laughs> oh, they were. I saw them. I saw them with Def Leppard last summer. They were brilliant. And Oreo were great. And Malcolm got me back, and I met Kevin Crone. And it was. I said the last time I saw you guys was with Survivor in 1982, when I the Tiger had just come out. Wow. And they were brilliant. But status quo. And Dave, do you know Dave Ling, journalist? I do. And Dave worked. I think Dave worked with Raw for a while, didn't he? He did. Now, anyway, Dave's the bit. He, you know, he's, he's Rick Parfit man. And he's really upset, you know, and Rick Dunn. He came to the gig with me, and he's a huge status quo fan. He's done sleeve notes for endless boxes. He said how poor they were now. And it's bad about Rick Parfit because, you know, he wanted to carry on doing music, and, but he didn't want to join status quo again because they're going to go just acoustic from now on. Yeah. So yeah. That, you know, so it was sad. But anyway, going back to that gig, I, I after I came back out from having drink with Cronin from REO, I was watching... I came out and saw about two numbers of quo, and it was like watching Top of the Pops. It was terrible. Oh, it wasn't the status. It wasn't the status quo of you know the, the down, 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 and all that stuff. Yeah. It was sad, but you know, I think they'll just do the acoustic stuff now. And you know, Sabbath played their, you know, Black Sabbath played their last two gigs the other day. Yeah, last night I think was the the last. Yeah, game. in Birmingham. In Birmingham. <laughs> it's a pity they couldn't get the thing with Bill Ward sorted out there, though, isn't it? That. They go no, I know. I, he, I think it was to do with the fact he wanted more money or something. Yeah, they, they, they tried. I think they're trying to say it's his health, and he said he's fine. That he's just given a crap it's, contract. It's the money. It's another one of your drummer stories, you know. Well, well, the drummers don't get as much as the rest. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, did you ever see bad news? You yeah. know that. Do you, do you remember that bit where Nigel Page says you didn't let the dog in free, did you? Yeah. <laughs> did, actually, bad news. Did you? Were you at the Donington where they played? Yeah, it's brilliant. <coughs> yeah, I, actually, the best Donington I ever saw was when Michael was on the side of the stage, and somebody chucked a pear up onto uh, towards Cliff, and it went into his bass bin. It came out. He took a he took a bite out of it, and actually threw it back to the same person who threw it. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant! Wow, that's 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 a way to get the audience on your side. Oh, it's brilliant! I've never seen it. But those Donningtons were great. I mean, it's weird. I haven't been to a download, but I used to always go to Donnington when it was called Monsters of Rock. Yeah. I mean, that's where you got the he- you got bad like Halloween on the bill. You had really good mixed bills those days. Yeah. And what what I find as well is that you have six or seven top quality bands. You don't have 75 bands. You know, they're all... No, like, the, the, the band, yeah. like, I remember in 87 when I went, it was like Cinderella opened. And at that time, they'd sold like two million copies of uh, Night Songs in the, in the States. Yeah, um, yeah, no, it's, I, mean, I, I just like no, I used to go to those day on the greens in California. Yeah, because they always had good bills. You know, you get Blois de Cole, Ozzy Osbourne. You know, you get a real good mixed bag of bands. Yeah, so you're 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 obviously in the in the TV world now. You're heavily involved in Doctor Who. Well, I'm doing this. I'm doing this current season. I'm doing two, um, and it's you know he's going now, don't you? Yeah, Peter's gone. Yeah, I heard that. He's going. Um, and my my episode's written by Moffat. And it's the bat stuck in the TARDIS. <laughs> it's quite funny. <laughs> it's good fun. And then I've just done um, 
I did a show called A Paranoid, which was about a drug company earlier in the year, and then then I've just done prior to that. I did um, something called Grantchester. Is that you probably don't get that in America? I don't. I've, I've never heard of it. No, right. Okay. Well, it's it's good, but you know, it's nice to still do a bit of the writing. So you should definitely keep an eye out for those Celtic Frost um, reissues. Yeah, you seem to still be have you still you still seem to love your metal, Xavier. Oh, I do. I still play it all the time. Yeah. You know, and I'm. You know, that Frontiers, that Italian label, there's some great bands coming out on there now. Yeah. And I only went to see Glenn Hughes the other week. He's brilliant. Oh, we saw him in uh, September. He's, ama- he's amazing. The band he has is incredible. And that vo- it's amazing his voice managed to retain that voice, you know, that you can still hit all those high notes. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Did you interview him at all when he was in his, the height of his drugs? No, I never really. I didn't, I've only met him a few times, um, but he's always been pleasant. And he, his trouble is, when he came over, the recently his mother's very ill, so you could see he was a bit down. So, yeah. But it, the show was still good. Yeah. And he was... So, um, and it, the band, the best band I saw recently was Except. Oh, with Mark Tornillo, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. If they were re- they're still great, and they played all the classics. Yeah. And then Udo, Udo played last year. He did, a, he did a total Except set. He's actually doing the rounds here now, doing that as well. Is he? It? Yeah, he, like he's sixty-five, sixty-six. So I think yeah, you I wouldn't th- think it when you see him. He's still a bloody good singer. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think at this stage though, he's probably making the right decision because he doesn't have that many years left, and he wants to do his solo stuff. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Get it out. Yeah. So, so the cor- anyway, Malcolm, just or Malcolm, Jesus, Xavier, la- last question yep. um, for me yep. before we let you go. <laughs> what do you think is your the best feature? you did for the magazine is the one that stands out where you go what yeah I, that's really good writing i had a great time actually doing that well, i think the celtic frost one which was in mega metal kerrang and also in extra kerrang i did a real thorough um blow by blow of all the weird and obscure you know the, the journey got all these promo albums and stuff i did a huge journey thing which i thought which went down very well with everyone who read it so i'd say there you know and, um, and my and the Metallica Road feature, I suppose, was good. But I think probably the Celtic Cross one, because they were so weird and different. Yeah. Um, that one, I suppose, stands out for me, because it was, you know, it was something different. And it was it was one of those things, you don't know what's going to happen when you go in there. And you don't know how the band are going to be, but they were so down-to-earth and nice. And, and also strange and weird, you know, doing an interview in a black room with skulls <laughs> and eager painting. And, they were, and he said that, because he runs, I don't know if you know, Tom Warrior now runs Giga's Museum. All right. Oh yeah, no, because they became quite friendly, and I said, "Is it true Giga sleeps in a coffin?" Yes, it is. <laughs> it's all this stuff. And then the, the Giga paintings on the wall were, were all originals, because you know, I don't know. Do you remember the the Mega Theranum with Jesus with a slingshot? Yeah. With the devil. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's you know, because he didn't really give permission to other people to do it, but because they got to know him, they, he gave them the full blessing to use all his artwork, which was perfect for their music. Yeah. And is so the, I think that, they, that was probably my favourite one that yeah. I've done. And, and is there one band that you championed for the magazine that you thought would be huge and they never actually broke big? Never broke big. Well, probably to Tankard. Everyone used to laugh at me about them. But, you know, I always said, oh, Tankard are going to be massive, but they weren't. I think Cre- and Creator have, became, have become quite popular. Um, but, you know, going back to Lex Diamond again, I wish they'd got bigger. But, you know, there are certain bands you think should be bigger. And the weird thing is, Clip... Uh, Lex Diamond were discovered by Cliff Bernstein, you know, who's part of Metallic, you know, the Mench- Bernstein management. Yeah. But, you, you know, whenever I talk to Bernstein about Lex Diamond, he said, oh, I don't, don't talk about that band. You know, everyone keeps on about them because <laughs> they were such a cult band, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting. Malcolm Dorm's answer was Fiona Flanagan. Oh, he loves Fiona. I know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what was so special about that. I know. When he said it to me, I was like, Fiona Flanagan. I was like, of all the bands. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, wow. wow. I think she, I think she must have she must have made sultry eyes at him or something. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Tani Kane was quite an good interview for me because he was quite funny. When, when did you interview her now? Was it like after, uh, after he spoke up? Mid-80s. She was with Jonathan Kane at the time in Journey. Ah. And then, but she, you know, it was just, it was a phoner one, but she was actually quite nice. And then I, I did, um, we, I was supposed to talk to when we reissued, they reissued her album on Rock Candy. Um, but I had to use quotes in the end because I could never actually get hold of her. But she, that was quite a good one back at the time. So I just used quotes from my original interview in the end. <laughs> yeah, I remember that, um, who are the other people who used to have them crying all the time? Some of the women, Lisa Dominique was one. 
Oh, right. They yeah, had, yeah. There was two girls in a band. Lee like, Aaron. Lee Aaron was another one. Um, well, we, we know Doro. We interviewed her. And Annie, and Annie from Hellion. Hell, yeah. Anvil, yeah, Hel- Anne Boleyn from Hellion, yeah. That's right. And but, Karen Lawrence from 1994. Yeah. But there was some of these, they had some of these in the magazine. And, and like, they just used to put them but in they because they looked... Page called, they had that page called Lady Killers, didn't they? That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they did all these women in the magazine and I'm like I've never heard one song from any of them <laughs> no <you missed> that. <laughs> oh, here. they were alright it was like trap metal then there was um, there was another girl um, she went out like do you remember that band Thor? Thor there was an offshoot of that band with this some lady singer who was like this big Thor type character I just can't remember her name but no. you know everyone used to talk but Rock Goddess were always good they're still going they've got a new album coming out yeah that's right. And they, and they still hang out. There's a place called the Crow Bar. Has Malcolm mentioned that? No. Oh, it's like a metal bar that everyone goes in. Um, it's in Soho, and it's just the place to go. It's just like you just go and hang out there, and there's all it's just non-stop metal in there, and that's where everyone goes. You know, bands come to town, they all go to this place. Wow. It's um, just off, It's just near Tottenham Court Road Tube Station. Fantastic. So if, you, if you find yourself in London, go there. Yeah, fantastic. All what play DJ plays all metal music and all that good stuff. So tell me, in Boston, is there like good clubs to see bands there? I mean, is it, or is it House of Blues? House of Blues. Yeah, right. you, you got to get out of Boston to uh, to see any, any decent like eighties bands, especially that the House of Blues will have the likes of Alter Bridge and oh, right. yeah, Meg- yeah. Megadeth might play there, but the eighties bands are they're, they're outside Boston, like and they only really play in the summer, and they're all part of packages. Like I think, oh, uh, I, see, right. I think in April. Is there, like, is there any local scene there? Um, a little bit, n- a little not bit, much. not not much. No, all right. I think it's like so a lot. You, is, there, is there like a Hall of Fame for Boston and Aerosmith somewhere? They had a bar years ago called Mamakin that was full of um, memorabilia. I remember going in there in the nineties, but I think that shut shop about 15 uh, years ago yeah 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 because bill, now bill the rock in boston has the aerosmith so they have all the aerosmith uh, <laughs> yeah well, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure steve tyler will be at the super bowl tonight yeah we're, we're, <laughs> gonna, we're gonna watch it well i am yeah scott, scott hates sports I'm, I'm definitely gonna watch it i'm a patriots fan so yeah well so. my team's rubbish at the minute the 49ers yeah, well, rubbish your, your, your quarterback doesn't like standing for the national anthem that didn't go over no, well he doesn't. and he's looking more like phil Linnett every week yeah, when, when that hair's gotta go <laughs> i'm surprised you can get it under the helmet <laughs> Anyway, yeah. So Xavier, this has been an absolute blast. The one thing I love about doing this is like I've spoken to you and Malcolm. You seem to love working for that magazine at the time. It was a special time for me as a guy reading it and listening to yeah. the music. But it's great to see that the people who actually wrote about it had good experiences about it as well. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I just loved it. It was it was just such a laugh. It's almost like you know you have, you pinch yourself. You think I shouldn't be here. It's too good. And then people, you know, it's weird. I still go when I was working up in Manchester recently. Because I had my name on the door, this couple of guys came knocking in. So you the guy that used to write for Kerrang, and then you know they'd be in there for hours chatting to me. So you know wherever you go, people still sort of ask me about Kerrang. And then recently, I don't know, do you remember the band Acid Rain? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I've heard of Acid Rain. Yeah. Yeah, Acid Rain with a singer in that. He does a podcast as well. And you know, I, I think similar to what I'm doing to you now. We I, we just chatted in the pub, and we filled it. I filled out you know, his tape, and then he, he, it went out on air, and, it's, and Malcolm's done it as well for him, and it's great, and you just, it's nice to talk about the old days. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of people definitely look back fondly on, on that era, not only in music, but on the, on the magazine writing as well, you know, it, it, you, you guys had a lot of influence on what people listen to. Yeah, and the, the sad thing is, I don't think there is any, I don't think there's been any really good bands in the last few years, to be honest, that compares to back then, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, everything's been done though, and yeah, you know, I think that you know, this, I got a bit. You know, this thing called new metal. I said, well, "What's so new about it?" You know, it's boring I hate, metal. I, I hated it. Yeah, I, I didn't like it at all. I thought, like, yeah. I just never got it. Like, a band that down tunes with no guitar solos. I'm, I'm, I'm not going yeah. there. You know, no, and you know, bands like Slipknot. I mean, it's more visual than the actual music, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that like not. 27 guys on the stage you know that kind of thing <laughs> making a racket <laughs> making a oh, racket look like something out of a horror movie <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd rather go see Tankard yes I have. <laughs> at least Tankard are funny <laughs> that's true anyway Xavier we'll, we'll, we'll leave you go 
and have a, have a good if rest you, of the if night. You need to ask, if you need to ask any further questions, or just email me, you know? Yeah, this has been a lot of lot of fun for me going down memory lane again. Good, all right. Yeah, so ha- have a good rest of the night, Xavier, and I'll send you the link right, when, when we've got nice this posted. Talk to you. Yeah, great Cheers, talking to you too. Okay, all right. Bye. Bye. All right, Metalheads, that is a wrap for another week of Focus on Metal. Big thanks to Xavier Russell for giving us a lot of time. He's definitely still a very busy guy, and to get that much time out of him, that uh, that is very cool. And if you want to keep up with uh, what he is doing, you can always find him at XavierRussell.com. Hey, that's pretty easy, isn't it? With all the great stories he told us, this might be uh, one of the high-point interviews of our whole Kerrang! project. Anyways, as I said, that's a wrap for this week. Not sure what's up for next week. Got a lot of uh, great interviews we've done over the last two weeks and uh, looking to bring those to you. Just got to sort through and figure out what we're doing. But until then, for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.